This is Media at Risk, a podcast from the Center for Media at Risk at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. My name is Richard Stupart, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the school. This episode of the podcast follows a conversation between two journalists reporting from Iraq and Somalia about the challenges of freelance reporting on two conflicts caught up in the dynamics of the U.S.'s forever war and largely happening out of the view of U.S. audiences. Amanda Sperber is a freelance foreign correspondent who has covered East Africa for the past six years. From Somalia, she's broken news on civilian casualties in U.S. airstrikes and U.S. ground raids, the opening of the first U.S. embassy in Mogadishu since the Black Hawk Down helicopter crash, and the plans for the development of a supply route project connecting U.S. bases from Djibouti to Somalia. Sperber won the Kurt Schalk Memorial Award for Investigations in Somalia and the One World Media Award for her coverage of sexualized violence in South Sudan's civil war. Jack Hewson is an independent journalist and filmmaker based in Baghdad after six years covering Indonesia and the Philippines. His writing has appeared in various international publications, including The Guardian, The Times of London, The Independent, The Nikkei Asian Review, USA Today, Al Jazeera English, The Financial Times, and Vice News. Since 2016, Jack has worked primarily in video, directing and producing stories for France 24, PBS NewsHour, The South China Morning Post, AJ Plus, and Monocle. A major challenge for reporting from Iraq has often been accessing information from many of the major players in the conflict. Even coalition forces are often unwilling to give out even basic details. This is Jack. Really, they don't give any access to their operations or embeds of US military unless it's in their interest. So in the wake of Qasem Soleimani's assassination and, and then the counterstrike by the Iranians, they were happy to let people come to the Ayn al-Assad base and see the damage that was done and tell their story in which, you know, the United States appears to be uh, a victim in a narrative. But other than that, there's been scant, you know, examples of people being given access to U.S. operations or even data on just basic, you know, like I asked for, um, you know, some kind of a database or, you know, on the number of rocket attacks on the U.S. embassy over the course of the year or numbers of ISIS attacks, uh, which have been registered by coalition forces. And I, I went through two weeks of WhatsApp messages with this guy and then... After that, he said, what's your email address? I gave him my email address. And then a week later, I got an email from some guy in the green zone saying, thank you for your inquiry into this information. This is not something that we officially share with journalists. <laughs> so I was like, uh, you probably could have WhatsApp that me on day one, but um, instead wasted three and a half weeks of my time. And, you know, people are getting quite fed up with that. So I don't, I don't think that's going to change. Yeah. In Somalia, difficulties in squeezing basic information from U.S. forces are compounded by the cost of accessing the front lines and the unwillingness of many sources to cooperate without payment, creating an economic cycle that can frustrate access. So, you've, access in Somalia is super hard, and there's I, I've been having a conversation with a Somali friend of mine who I who I often work with about how it's kind of a chicken and egg thing because Somalis have um, kept. Uh, been exceptionally good at keeping a financial lid on things. So you could, in theory, I would never, I've never done this and I, I certainly would, but you could, in theory, get to the front lines, uh, certain front lines with Al-Shabaab, but it'll cost you 10 grand a day. So no one does it. Um, 
And it's one of those things that I think, you know, A, if it was cheaper, the Times or something would do it. Or, or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, who's to say? But I think if it was cheaper, there would be more access, even if it was just a tiny bit cheaper. But simultaneously, because no news comes from out there, no one is interested in doing it. So it kind of creates a, a its own loop. So I've sometimes talked about, I was sometimes talking to a fixer on, I wanted to do recently a much more mundane story just about some sources that would be sensitive. And I wanted to do the story from, from here via WhatsApp. And the fixer who's, who's a friend of mine was just saying that information costs money and, and that's more like kind of intelligence, not, not news. Though, you know, he kind of indicated that the intelligence is also news. And I was sort of saying, and that he, as a Somali civilian, was, was not opposed to that kind of information getting out. And I was sort of saying, if I can do one story where this, if someone is willing to give me this information for free, I can then do one story and then it's possible I can then say to a news outlet, you know, I need to pay this fixer $500 a day for two days to do this work. But I can't, Obviously, there are journalists that have significantly more sway. But unfortunately, I'm not in a position where I can say to an editor, I promise if you give me a grand, like I'm going to come back with information. But if I've already if I'm able to tease a little bit, then I might be able to do that. And so I was sort of trying to explain to him we were calling it like the chicken and egg and seeing who would like screech first in, in terms of in terms of how that works. So I guess I guess all this to say that, you know, access, I think access is, is, is quite complicated and there's a huge financial component. And then, and a lot of people, both the Americans and the Somalis, in this case, the Americans, a lot of people from all over the world benefit from that, from that lack of access. Yeah, I, I, I've now recently developed a mission by which I want to try and I'm trying to talk some people into into saying, or I'm wondering, I guess, maybe I should say, I'm wondering how it would change the dynamic if some more stuff was able to get leaked to journalists for for free and how, and if that might create a situation where where there might be more interest in the country. For the access that you got for the stuff that you got the award for, uh, the Kurt Shork one, how did you secure all that kind of stuff? I, how did you get to those people? I mean, because Somalia is so expensive, um, I had, you know, I got a grant to do that through through type investigations. Um, but ultimately, that was based on two years of me kind of scrapping around Somalia and building relationships so that I could even make a super reasonable budget to apply for a grant. Because I think I worked with some people that are generally get paid $800 a day to do translations. And and every time that someone calls them, they charge them $50. And I, I had a budget to pay translators something, but nowhere near even a smidgen of that. And so I think that access was sort of generated in part by just being there and becoming friends with local journalists and just getting to getting an understanding of the situation and the dynamics and being based there. And then from there, I was able to get apply for this grant for five grand, which is eminently doable to do this story. But I think the access took and it, I didn't go into it with that intention, but I think after when I look back on it, the access was gleaned from 
just kind of being around, <laughs> basically, for a long time. In both contexts, being a foreign reporter comes with very real risks to personal safety that make even basic tasks like navigating the capital something that may need to be carefully considered. While both Baghdad and Mogadishu have fortified green zone type areas for certain classes of international visitor, the day-to-day -day work involved in securing safe passage can differ in some very weird ways. If I go from Baghdad airport, then like there's a kind of a five, pretty much a five kilometer exclusion zone around the actual airport, you know, the where the planes take off and then the perimeter. And then you get out to there and I, I could probably get a taxi from there um, and not get kidnapped. Um, and like it, they have a, a, vision, a version of Uber there, which is called Kareem. And I could probably get that because the, they're quite, uh, you know, efficient um, at certain times, say like directly after the killing of Qasem Soleimani or whatever, there was a heightened kidnap risk. There were people who were kidnapped off my street. Um, but like I could probably mo most of the time, like get a taxi to my street and like most of the time I can go out onto my street out even though I'm not you know I can I can walk into the, my area I'll do my grocery shopping with my crap Arabic and then I'll come back and then you know I'm, I'm kind of okay and like if there's a, a diplomatic incident if there's some heightened tension then we're advised not to go outside uh, I, I, you know there are moments when you know and people have been kidnapped literally uh, off the street on which I live um, but it's like ultimately in Baghdad at least I can go into Baghdad and I can not be in the green zone and I can actually sort of interact with the city to some degree I because I, from what I've heard like Mogadishu is uh, by orders of magnitude as I mentioned far more dangerous like that you apparently you can't really get from the airport to the center of town without a full land cruiser bulletproof land cruiser convoy and like 12 armed guards that then comes back to uh relationship building which is i've gone in the back of a car with tinted windows and because i am friends with people they will give me that ride for free kind of thing and move quickly and you go to a 30 minute meeting and then drive back and keep your head down you can do it i think most journalists aren't able to do that because they haven't built those relationships i've gone so i've done that a bunch you can also i did some copywriting for a hotel at one point and they in exchange gave me their private militia to use when the militia was not busy. Well, that's an interesting payment. Did you stick that on the invoice or? No, so they, you know, cause they, <laughs> the hotel militia would, they would lend it to NGOs for a thousand dollars an hour, but they weren't super busy. So I, if I, like I did a few stories from the government hospital and I would just be me and then with a, in a bulletproof car with a, a full convoy of uniformed soldiers, but they had nothing to do all day. And I was, did just wrote some copy for the hotel website. And then I'd be like, you know, I really want to go to this hospital. Do you think there's a time that we could go in the next three days? So I obviously had a little less control over the schedule because they would say, well, actually, we're working for the UN on this day, so we can't take you. But, but then I think the power dynamic was slightly different because they would say, OK, but we're only going for an hour because we want to eat lunch. But given the given the deal I was getting, it was 
it was completely fair. So that's kind of the way that I've been able to to move around is is either being a little bit quick or kind of cutting deals with with security companies so that I can move grandly and and safely. But yeah, I've also gone there are some Americans you know, some like quite well-paid Americans who are no longer in Mogadishu, who work for the government and stuff, who actually do drive around Mogadishu in, in a soft skin car with a, a lot of dark windows. And they've let me sit in the back seat before and stuff like that. So that's another way to go about it. And those guys are definitely people that I feel safe with. So yeah, that's sort of how I've, I've done it. But no, I mean, you cannot... Or, I would not feel comfortable bending. Uh, I, I'm curious what other journalists who have been based in, in Mogadishu for a long time have done, because uh, I'd be open to doing this, but I don't really know what the precedent is. Like, I wouldn't spend more than a few hours outside there because I think at that point you've attracted attention to yourself and, and then you need to leave. So you do have to move quite quickly. And certainly I've never been in like a grocery you know going grocery shopping would be insane nothing like nothing like that i think the kidnapping risk is pretty is pretty high so you you definitely are quickly moving for sure though i'd be open to talking to unfortunately there's so few international journalists there but and the situation is so dynamic but i don't know if if my risk assessment is is incorrect on that but like i would never sleep outside of not even the green zone, but like outside of kind of this very small area of Mogadishu that's quite separate from the city. Like I wouldn't spend a night in in Mogadishu proper because not because I'd be worried about like getting blown up, but because I'd be worried that someone would hear that there's an American there. But I could be off on that. But it's kind of the it's the kind of thing where you you don't want to find out. No, I the don't only way to experiment is I, I to think, do it, you yeah. know. And and honestly, <laughs> and and honestly, even truly, like even more than my own safety, though I obviously am quite concerned with my own safety. I think there's a level of of self. There's quite a bit of level of selfishness at play if you then end up treating in a place like your like your playground as a as opposed to something that keeps me grounded from doing that. Besides, obviously, my own security is the fact that I think it's quite. You don't want to be someone somewhere that someone that's treating a place like, oh, let's see what happens if I do this now, because that that has a huge impact on someone's local hotel. There was one time I was in Baidoa, which is uh, outside of Mogadishu, and um, I was staying at a at a safe hotel, but it was you know where other foreigners stay. But I was the only I was the only white person staying there, so there were other NGOs there, but it was still. It wasn't inside the wire, so it was like a little bit edgy. And I was the only white person there and the only, you know, so I, I definitely stood out. And I at one point I went out to do a story with it and I had uh, security with a big NGO and the hotel is quite secure and blah, blah, blah. So I just left, went out for the day, came back in, just kind of normal reporting day. And I come back in and the owner of the hotel is like literally sweating, <laughs> freaking out. And he's like, where did you go? And I was like, oh, I, you know, I went out with Save the Children. They came through the gate, whatever. And he was like, I thought that you'd been, you know, and he's he, like, he was obviously he was worried about my safety, but also like this is his business, his family, the ramifications of he was like, you always have to tell me personally when you leave. 
you know, and it was just yeah, like, yeah. like, you know, obviously, again, he, he doesn't want anything to happen to me because yeah. he's a nice person. But the the ramifications on on literal on like for his city would be insane. And I think he had he hadn't thought that I'd gotten kidnapped. So the hotel was way too secure for that. But I think he thought I'd kind of wandered around and had been a bit of an asshole. And I was like, no, 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 I guess, you know, I didn't think to tell you that this whole security team came in because obviously your hotel is so secure that you wouldn't think that I would do that. But yeah, it's definitely, I think it would be selfish to do, to do that even if I wanted to. In the case of Iraq, danger to foreign reporters can often hinge more on the specifics of current politics than being a constant backdrop to the work. This is Jack on what the situation typically looks like. What can happen to you in Baghdad is that you just would, they would decide that they, the, the militias want to embarrass the government and they'll take somebody as a pawn. Um, and it's like you would just be followed and they're taken like candy off the street and then, you know, bargained with. Outside of Baghdad, your risks are very different. So you're talking about like maybe if you go on an embed to, on a counter ISIS operation, nearly always you'll be driving around with maybe the federal police or whatever, and uh, you'll probably find nothing. On occasion, though, what can happen is that there might you, there may be contact, but it's extremely rare because you know essentially they'll be hiding from the people who are looking for them. Um, but in Diyala, there was actually a journalist who ended up in a you know a clash there. Uh, he, he he survived that, and so did most of the the security forces he was with. But um, it's those are the sort of risks that you get out in the provinces. And if you drive anywhere in the provinces, ones which are likely to you know be more threatened by ISIS, um, you don't want to be driving on the roads that aren't major roads before about nine thirty in the morning and in a convoy because they target the convoys and they 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 hit the first one they can see. So. You know, so you're actually better off with a small car that's anonymous sitting in the back and no one really knows who you are. Um, so, you know, it's kind of that's the sort of risk environment you're looking at there. It's, it's kind of different. It very much depends on the area that you're in. In addition to security, money is also critical to being able to pursue certain kinds of stories. As funding for foreign correspondence has declined over the decades, it's put pressure on journalists of all kinds, but perhaps freelancers most of all. There are certain stories which are just very expensive to do. I don't know, actually, in terms of the security issues, not so bad, because nearly always you're going to go with one of the security forces. Um, the, the, it's more like the long-term investigations that you might do, which require so much of your time are limited by money. And for that sort of thing, very much, you know, people like the Pulitzer Foundation and Type Investigate need to be there for those sorts of you know filling out your expenses account so yeah they they there are from like the point of view of longevity not so much from the point of view of security because I mean, you were saying you could maybe go to the front line of some of these right but it would just cost you so much money exactly and 10 grand a day is not something that even you know the Pulitzer Foundation is going to be uh, shelling out for even well-funded news organizations, however, soon find that money alone can't get you the access you need and can create a number of unintended consequences. This is Amanda on encountering this effect firsthand. I was actually in, this is a, a decent media story, there's kind of a, a legendary, I was, I was there for it a few, two summers ago when I was in Somalia, there was a massive 
conglomeration of one media there. It was really like, it was a few indirect things, but it was in some way related to HBO. So they, they really had, like, they had millions. And they were, we were staying at the same hotel. I was, I was staying for free. And the, the guys there were, they were there for two weeks. They had a th- they had stuff that they wanted to do. It was around Mogadishu. They had specific access and they wanted to do it. And that was that. And they were just burning through money because they were not getting the access and they were just getting charged for everything because people like quickly realized that they could just charge them for stuff and not actually do anything. And that the longer they drew this out, the more they would pay. So they just, but it it got, because they had like a proper movie budget, it got pretty serious. Yeah, and something that happened at one point was we were staying at the same hotel and we were talking one night. I was talking to those guys one night and I sort of said, the situation here is it's really complicated. And I know it's complicated everywhere, but the complications here are unique to the complications that there are in other places. I mean, I think there are parallels, but every place is unique. And and some of the stuff that you want, you might need to figure out other ways to do it, or just, or it might, it might really not be doable. And they were just sort of could not get their head around that. And then kind of, they were all, uh, no offense, but like, you know, middle they were all like, you know, white dudes and, you know, who just worked in war zones. And one of them was like, I was at the liberation of Mosul. Like, I don't think you understand. Like, I worked for 60 minutes, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, 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 no. I, I do understand that, like, you're way more experienced and cooler than me. But just this is a really specific context. So it doesn't have to do with all the cool stuff that you've done. It's just that every situation is different. And, you know, and you're getting manipulated in a way that you don't seem to understand because though you do have a lot of understanding that I don't have, I have understanding that you don't have because I'm here all the time and you've just flown in. This episode of Media Drisk was recorded by Amanda Sperber and Jack Hewson and edited by Richard Stewart. Bobby Zelizer is the director of the Center for Media at Risk. Learn more at www.ascmediarisk.org.